Let's ask for help this morning. God, as we look into Genesis 46, and as we come down this final stretch of these narratives together, would you help us not to lose sight of the main emphasis? Would you help us to keep our eyes centered on what it is that you are directing us to in these texts that we can say as we read the scriptures what we just sung, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so, Lord, we would pray that by your spirit you would show us Christ as we preach the word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a book that we utilize here at Gospel Life Church. We utilize it in our church membership through the history of our church. Our foundation documents reference this book. Uh, it, was, it was actually our first church-wide study that we did together. It's called The Gospel-Centered Life. And this book is essentially about what the gospel is and also how that gospel works, right? That the gospel is this good news at the center of scripture about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, but that gospel actively works in the life of the believer. It works to, to bring about godliness and a life that follows Christ, conforms with the person of Christ. But it also works to push us out on mission. It works in the way that we relate to one another. And in this, this short but important work, uh, authors Bob Thune and Will Walker talk about what happens at the moment of conversion. Okay? There are two central things that happen really at the moment of conversion. At that moment, we find a growing realization of God's holiness and a growing realization of our sinfulness. It's a growing realization because it's not some one-time thing that happens that we never revisit or some one-time thing that happens that we talk about in a past tense, but rather it's something that we continue to see uh, at work in, in our lives continually. Year after year, for instance, we see the holiness and goodness and otherness of God continue to grow. As you've heard me reference in church membership classes before, many of you, not unlike that moment in Lewis's Prince Caspian after the Pevensey children have gone through the events of the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Lucy hadn't seen Aslan's face for more than a year, she was actually back in England preparing to attend boarding school. Her and her siblings caught back up into Narnia, and eventually she comes face to face with this lion king of Narnia, Aslan, again. And this is how Lewis records the exchange. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. There it is, right? There's Lewis's picture. It's not that God actually grows in his righteousness, but rather that we as believers, right at the outset of our Christian faith, start this journey in which every single day and every single year we continually see him as more holy than we saw him the day before and the year before. We're confronted more and more by what the author of Isaiah tells us, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are 
your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But at the moment we're confronted with this growing reality of God's holiness, we're also confronted with the growing realization of our sinfulness. That's not to say that we actually sin more. Quite the opposite is actually true. If we believe in Christ, if we throw ourselves upon his mercies, we'll actually be putting sin to death. But we have a growing realization of our capacity for sinfulness as Christians. You know, the more we trust in Christ, the more we see his goodness in the scriptures, the less we trust our own hearts are actually reliable guides. The more we see the holiness of Christ and the more we see the reality of the human heart on full display throughout human history, the more we get to know ourselves honestly, the more we realize that the prophet Jeremiah is correct when he says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The idea that our hearts would be good or reliable guides that follow your heart is good advice is something that the prophet Jeremiah says is on the face, folly, on the face of it. So at the moment of conversion, right, realization, the growing reality of God's holiness and perfection, the growing reality of our depravity and sin. And so at the moment of conversion, what are we confronted with? We're confronted with our need for a savior. Right? Not just this one-time event, right? but as we grow. So, so we throw ourselves on the mercy of a Savior who came for us so that we might know God despite our sinfulness. But as we grow in our Christian journey, we come to see not less need for him, but more need. We come to realize more and more what our need for this Savior truly is. That, uh, as Spurgeon said, the, the, the older you get as a Christian the more you realize how great your need of a Savior really is and how great of a Savior you really have for your need. And, and the more that, that pushes us out into uh, a life that can, is conformed to the reality of Christ. So we're confronted with the reality that we must throw ourselves on the mercies of Christ and that we throw ourselves on his mercies alone if we're going to be saved because my depravity is too great to somehow live in a way that God could approve of me on the basis of my own merit. Throughout that Christian journey, however, we still struggle. We struggle to believe this, right? We struggle with what Thune and Walker actually label pretending and performing. The reason for it is the very thing that I think makes the gospel offensive in every generation. It's hard to believe that we're sinful. Like, it's not hard to believe that we're sinful because there's no empirical data for it. I think I mean, even those who don't believe in Christ can look into the world and say, verifiably, human nature being depraved is an easy thing to demonstrate, right? It's not that empirically it's hard to believe, but it's hard emotionally. It's hard to believe that, uh, could I really be sinful? And so we minimize the idea of our sinfulness. Relatedly, because of that, when we're confronted with God's holiness, our tendency is to try to somehow perform as though we can please a holy God with our efforts apart from his work. And so by doing that, we minimize his holiness. 
Something about the gospel doesn't sound right to our ears. I can't really be that sinful. I can surely perform well enough for God and others to love me. Like, we have a really hard time believing the gospel because believing in the gospel runs counter to what you will hear about yourself everywhere else in the world around you. And so, because it seems in a sense so counterintuitive, or at the very least so counter to what you hear everywhere else, here's what we do. We, want to, we don't trust that God's plan is good. It's like what happened in the garden. We don't trust that God's plan is good. We think we know better. We don't trust always giving control over to the Lord, and so we want control. And so what we do is we establish our own forms of righteousness. Even as Christians, we struggle with finding our righteousness, not solely in Christ, but trying to bring control back. And here are several examples that Thune and Walker list. Job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Family righteousness, because I do the right things as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Intellectual righteousness, I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Schedule righteousness, I'm busy and rigorous with my calendar, which makes me more advanced and mature. Flexibility righteousness, in a world that's very busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone should. They offer a handful of other examples, but the primary point is that while the Christian is the one who believes that the good news of Jesus is sheer grace through faith in what Christ did that I could never do for myself alone, that's it. We still struggle to compensate for the things that we either don't like to hear, we don't want to believe it, or the things that don't seem to like make sense to us. Like, why would God say that? Why would he tell me that in his word? It's like there are people who are afraid to fly, you know? It's like a, it's a legit phobia, afraid, afraid of air travel. And oftentimes you'll see that they'd rather drive across the country than board an airplane. If you press someone with this kind of phobia on the reality that air travel is actually orders of magnitude safer than driving yourself across the country, what you'll often hear in reply is, yeah, yeah, but I'd rather be in control. Like, I'm behind the steering wheel in the car. I have no idea what the pilot is doing, right? I wanna be in control. We have this compulsion to be the ones who call the shots to look to our own hearts for guidance despite the reality of our own sin, you know? And so throughout the scriptures, here's what we find, okay? We find a God who comes to his people and shows them again and again and again that even when things don't make sense to us that are a part of his plan, even when things seem counterintuitive, even when they're difficult for us to believe for a variety of reasons, his plan is good. Even when things look from our limited vantage point as that which doesn't make any sense, God says, I'm in control. I always work for the good of my people. We don't believe that, so we establish these other forms of righteousness. We want to be in control. God says, that's not for your good. 
It's, not only is it not for your good, but it's dangerous. Do you realize the road where that leads you? I'm in control, and my plan is good. My word is true, right? And this is what we find heading into the last five chapters of Genesis, specifically here in 46 this morning. All of our tendencies towards self-salvation projects, all of our tendencies to maintain control of our own lives are shown at the end of Genesis to be absolute folly when we see that God's plan is the one that always in the end works for good, that he can be trusted. And we see it working for good in three ways in 46 this morning. So for those of you who like outlines and you think in terms of structure, let me tell you where we're going. First we'll find in Genesis 46, God works all things together for the good of his people, even in Egypt. Even in a situation that's hard, you know, like we remember the Joseph narratives in Slit beaten by his brothers, thrown into a pit, enslaved and sold into Egypt, imprisoned in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt, right? Even in the midst of hardships, even in a situation that appears to run contrary to the way that Jacob thinks things should have looked, God was with him, present with his people. Second, we find God works all things together for the good of his people, even for Egypt. God's blessing and promise doesn't simply stop extending at the family of Jacob. But rather it extends to all those who are far from him. And then finally, God works all things together for good for his people, even through Egypt. That is to say, even in circumstances that were created because of human sin, even in circumstances that make no sense, God actually is active in working through the circumstance itself so that his plan delivers and brings about what he promised. Okay, so God works all things together for the good of his people in Egypt, for Egypt, and through Egypt. Let's look even in Egypt, starting in verses 1 through 7. So Israel, this is Jacob, set your eyes there with me, verse, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and the wagons the Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they'd gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So the narrative, okay, listen, the narrative begins with Jacob journeying out to see his son, Joseph, whom he has not seen, right, for over a decade, whom he believed throughout most of this time to be dead. And before he takes that journey, he goes to Beersheba and he offers sacrifices, the text tells us, to the God of his father, Isaac. 
But why might he have done this? And why does the author include this detail here? He goes to Beersheba and he offers sacrifices to the God of his fathers. Well, just at a very plain level, but it's worth mentioning. The author here wants to remind us again, remind the reader that Jacob does, in fact, worship the same God as his forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. He wants the readers to know that it's the same God who called Abraham in chapter 12 that's now calling Jacob. And we're going to see why, but it's very important. Specific connection as to why. But he also includes it because it does seem, at least to a certain extent, that there's some hesitancy on the part of Jacob to leave the promised land and to sojourn in Egypt. We see a couple of clues that point us in that direction here in the next few verses. Look with me here. Uh, the Lord says to him, Jacob, Jacob, this is in verse 2, about the middle. Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob said, here I am. This is really a reminder of God's grace to Jacob. Like, uh, even after the failure, after failure, after failure, that's just so evident. It's just so evident in Jacob's life. We see this meaningful repetition of a name which all, always signals intimacy in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament between God and his people. God approaches Moses and he says, Moses, Moses. Jesus' resurrection appearance to Mary, he says, Mary, Mary. It's this merciful intimate drawing out, right? Jacob, Jacob. God is merciful with Jacob. We see the evidence of that mercy in what he tells him in verse 3. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. So how does this give us a clue about, ja about Jacob's hesitancy to head down to Egypt? Well, look at the text. God's reassuring him here. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why might he be afraid? Well, let's flip back right in our memory in Genesis to chapter 26. Because in chapter 26, we, what we find is that the Lord appears to Isaac, Jacob's father, and he tells him, do not go down to Egypt. Right? Do not go. That's literally what he says. Do not go down to Egypt, a word-for-word -word translation. So, look at these two statements back to back. Chapter 26, the Lord speaking to Jacob's father, do not go down to Egypt. Now chapter 46, the Lord speaking to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Same exact imperative, one positive, one negative. The same exact words used in both imperatives, do not, coupled with go down to Egypt. But here in 46, he adds the words, be afraid to. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. In other words, if we did not have chapter 46 in our Bible, the reader, as well as Jacob, might be under the impression that going down to Egypt itself is what in principle was offensive to God in chapter 26. That he wanted his people in the land of promise. And so to somehow go would feel like abandoning what the Lord had called them to. That he wanted his people there, and so people should avoid sojourning in Egypt. In addition, the reader already has this gnawing feeling, right? That what happened with Jacob or with uh, Joseph shouldn't have happened, like beaten and sent to Egypt. So Egypt already doesn't feel like a great place because of the pre preceding narratives, right? That has led up to this point. It, it, it kind of seems that this might, ha this must have somehow been contrary to God's plan. 
But here we find a gospel rejoinder in which God tells Jacob, he says, trust me. Listen, trust me. The promise that I made to Abraham still rests entirely on my shoulders rather than upon yours. Jacob, you should know by now that if any part of this promise rested on your shoulders, the Bible would be done, right? We'd all, this would be a very short book. We closed it a long time ago, right? And God says essentially, I am active in working all things together for good, even in Egypt. Even in a place of hardship, even in a place where you think it's hesitant to go, even in a place outside of the place that you thought you were being called. What will happen in Egypt? Well, God will make his people into a great nation there. In other words, while his people are in Egypt, God will be active in making good on his promises. He can be trusted. There's a certain sense like from within this reassurance aspect of the text in which God is saying, Jacob, Jacob. I know this doesn't appear to make any sense to you, me calling you to a land of promise and now telling you to go to Egypt, but I am at work in it, and you can trust me. So he repeats to Jacob what he told them at Bethel, you know, this, this place earlier on when Jacob goes out to Bethel and he sees this big ziggurat, this big staircase going up, stretching up into the heavens. And he sees instead of, he's, you know, sees this pinnacle, these angels, uh, you know, going back and forth, this mediation between God and man. But instead of a vision in which the way to God, which the rest of the world would have told him at the time and continues to tell us today, that the way to God is fueled by our own, our own efforts in climbing that staircase and laboring and toiling to him, actually the only way that we can be in God's presence is if he descends to us. And so, so we see that, J Jacob hears God tell him at Bethel, I am, behold, I am in this place. I've descended, I'm with you, right? And now he repeats that promise in verse 4. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. I'm with you. I will go down with you. My presence is with you. I'm behind everything that happens. And so Jacob and his family go down to Egypt. And as they go down, you know, the reader, I think, to a certain extent is right to see some of this as being a little counterintuitive because like, think about these two mirrored texts. God coming to Abraham and telling him, leave the land of your fathers to this land that I will show you, this land of promise. And what happens? Abraham by faith gathers up everything that he owns and every single person that's with him and they all go to this land of promise. And now at the end of Genesis, Jacob is instructed by the Lord to pack up everything that he has, all of his family and go out of that land and into this land of Egypt. So God works, yet God is at work. So God works all things together for the good of his people, even in Egypt, even in situations or circumstances that don't make sense to his people, in the moments when we want to not put our trust in him and instead put our trust in, him, in ourselves because the circumstances don't make sense to us, God's still at work and he will continue to be at work. He's, he's present with his people. Second, we see this to be true even for Egypt, right? Where does this promise extend? Well, verses 8 through 27 give us this long list of names of the sons of and descendants of Jacob. And props to Emma, that was, you did a great job. You know, there's this competition at GLC between Maria and Lydia and now Emma. Like, who's going to be the, the genealogy reader? Um, but good work. 
And in this list we see, starting with the sons of Reuben, the author wants to show us that something new is now happening. God's at work doing something new for his people. You know, and this is where we find, you know, that these parallel narratives or mirrored narratives throughout Genesis are so crucial. Like, Genesis is a crazy hyperlinked book. Everything is always referencing something else throughout Genesis. All of these narratives are mirroring something else that happened or transpired on the pages of Israel's history in these first five books. And so you see all of this hyperlinking happen. And so then when you go back and read it again, you know, what we read now points us backward. But when you go back and read Genesis again, you'll read it and that'll point you forward to see, oh yeah, that's right, because this is going to happen. And we see that to be true here. Because after listing all of these sons... This is what the author says. This is the point of it. In verses 26 and 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all, and the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the household of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Okay, so this is... This is the second time in Genesis that this specific thing has happened. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But I can't find a single Old Testament scholar who thinks it's just accidental. All right. Like it can't be. So just like God says, do not go down to Egypt. And then he says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So it kind of links those two together and mirrors something that happened earlier. In the same way, we see something repeated like that here to get the reader to connect the story back. Where are we connected back to? Well, the number that we see total coming with Jacob out of Egypt is 70. This is how God's sovereignty is at work, you know. It's really quite striking. 70 that came with Jacob out of Egypt. And the number of nations at the end of Genesis 10 was also said to be 70. Okay, the descendants of Seth that continue, you know, descendants of then of Noah that continued to, to, to grow, we see uh, 70 nations. And what, what happens to that group of 70, right? Well, immediately in the next chapter, Genesis 11, do you remember what happens? They all fall into the same sin of the garden, right? And they try to become like God. And they try to access wisdom of God apart from him. And they try to do the opposite of that ziggurat of, of the Lord descending. And they try to actually ascend the staircase to true wisdom. And it says the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 32 references this and it says he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So what we have here is quite striking. We have a new group of 70 sons. We have a new movement from God in which he does not disperse the 70 sons into many nations in the midst of their sins, but rather he plans to make these 70 sons into one great nation. By which drawing all, blessing all nations, drawing all nations into covenant with the Lord. Salheimer is helpful here. He says, the writer has gone to great lengths to portray the new nation of Israel as the new humanity and Abraham as a second Adam. The blessing that comes through Abraham and his offspring is a restoration of the original blessings of Adam, a blessing that was lost in the fall. 
The picture of God that emerges from these pages is not merely, listen to this, it's not merely of a God who works with his own chosen people for their good alone, but who works with the nations to bring about a plan of salvation and blessing to all. The picture is similar to that in Isaiah 45, where the rise of the kingdom of Persia is portrayed as the handiwork of God, all for the sake of the universal salvation and blessing God intends through his chosen seed. In other words, God is active, listen, not only saving Jacob and not only saving Jacob's sons, but doing so in order to make good on his promise at the beginning of the chapter, which echoes the same promise that God made to Abraham in chapter 12. Which is that through his seed, through this promised one that, that is to come, through the one that in Genesis 3 was promised right away after sin in the garden, who would come and crush the head of the serpent, through this promised one that is to come, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here God now continues to preserve a line of people from whom would one day come the promised seed, the promised royal king that would save people from every tribe and tongue and nations who throw themselves upon his mercy. And this new humanity of the people of Israel that the author puts on display here, listen, it was never intended, it was never intended to be over against the nations, shutting them out entirely and only viewing them as enemies, but rather to function as a light to the nations that they might believe and enter the covenant of the only triune God, which is why when you get to Matthew and you see the genealogy of Jesus, you see names like Ruth and Rahab. So God works all things together for good, even in Egypt, even in the hardship, even when it doesn't make sense to our ears. Even for Egypt, preserving a remnant, a promised seed that would bless every nation of the earth who would repent of their sin, people from every nation who would repent and call, call upon his name. And finally, even through Egypt, even through Egypt, verses 28 through 34, let's just start here in, in verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph, so Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. Let's stop there just real quickly. Just to highlight it real fast because we're going to get there in chapter 49. But here the author highlights Judah, not Joseph, as the one who leads his family to the place where they will become a great nation. And this is actually pretty important thematically. Like Judah goes ahead and brings them safely to the land of Goshen. And a few commentators note, like this is part of the author's overall strategy in these closing chapters to highlight the role of Judah in, in God's plan to deliver Israel. We won't say much more about it now other than to say... It's most clearly demonstrated in a few weeks when we get to chapter 49. But now here's what we find. This, this reunion that we've all been waiting for between Jacob and his lost son Joseph, along with Joseph's plan to now engineer a way for his family to live in this place, Goshen. So starting in verse 29, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. 
And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of the livestock, and they have brought their flocks and herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay, so Judah leads them into Goshen. And now Joseph devises this wise plan, which is kind of, you know, we know it's kind of what he does, right? We remember from previous weeks that Joseph is this prefigurement of all of the wise men to come in Israel. And, and this, his plan includes telling Pharaoh, making sure he understands, they're shepherds. They're shepherds because Egyptians feel much the same way about shepherds as the people of Israel would eventually feel about shepherds in their own history. And for more detail on that, I would just point you back to our series that we did this previous Advent, in which we find God revealing his arrival for the first time, like announcing his arrival to the people that society despised most. And here we see the Lord will bring about this nation through the very people that the surrounding world despises. Goshen, we'll give you Goshen, just don't come in closer to us. Not only that, but God will use that land And those people, to ultimately bring about his plan, listen, listen to me. If you listen to nothing else, listen to this. One of the most repeated and predictable ways that God works through the scriptures is to help his people understand that they are not the reason that any of his plans actually happen. We forget this all the time. But repetitively, The way he sets up every structure and every narrative and every method of ministry, every means by which we we grow in our faith. He wants his people to understand they're not the reason that his plan prospers. Like at no point should God's people ever be able to stand back and kind of like throw up their shoulders. You know, uh, get get their friend's attention, put their head up and say, hey, you see that church? You You see what's happening over there? Yeah, I did that. I mean, we, we did that. Ch- check that out. That was us. I mean, okay, 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 of course, God blessed the work, right? Couldn't have done them without them or whatever, but look at us. Look what we did. I fear that this is how much of the church in the West sounds these days. Look at us. Look what we're doing. Look what we built. Look at these cool things. I mean, all glory to God. He's the one that helped us and all, but look at, look at what we built. I think at every turn in the scriptures, and it's tempting, it's tempting to do that as a pastor, right, to rest in my plans. It's tempting to do that as a, as a new church, to rest in our plans. But every turn in the scriptures, the means that, God's, that God provides us for the actual unfolding of his plan or such, that if anyone were to claim responsibility for it, he would just be laughed out of the room. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that a group of nasty shepherds from Goshen, 70 of you, will become such a great, mighty nation that you'll ultimately be a source of blessing to every single nation on earth? No, wait, listen. Pharaoh is the source of blessing to every nation on the earth. Look at the mighty empire he built. Shepherds, LOL. Get out of here with that, right? This is how God likes to operate. He wants it to be clear that it wasn't Israel that did this. You know, that it wasn't these 70 people. It could only have been him that brings about the ultimate glory. This is why we saw earlier that the child of promise, Isaac, 
didn't come about by Hagar, but came about through this 90-year-old barren woman. Because if a 90-year-old barren woman walked into the room and said, I have a plan to save the world, and it starts with me having a baby, people would think she was joking or had lost her mind, right? It's the same way here. Like, this is why God brings them to Egypt, that through a group of shepherds who had turned slaves, God would topple a Pharaoh who rose to such mighty power and hardened his heart against them repeatedly in order to demonstrate that he is more powerful than anyone, that his plan is achieved by his work and his work alone. It's like with GLC. It's easy to plant a church with your own plans, with my own plans about how things are going to go. And then even when your plans seem ideal, they encounter a pandemic, and you lose the building that you rented downtown, and God moves you to this entirely different location, and you begin to minister there. You didn't foresee any of it turning out this way, and you, you can kind of wonder sometimes, why is this happening? And I think the twofold answer is, first, that we would learn to trust him. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. That's very clear, right, on this church planning journey. If there's one thing that we can say is true is that we don't, we can't tell what the future holds for Gospel Life Church. It's out of our control. I, I hope we've learned that by now. But the twofold answer is that we would learn to trust him instead of relying on ourselves. That's one of the reasons why this happens. And second, that we would never, ever, ever be able to say, hey, look at us. Look at what we did. Right? That in the future, if any of us tried that kind of shenanigans in a community group or something down the road, where we were like, look at all the cool things we did, that like we would all kind of chuckle realizing it was just a joke. Because God is the one who's so evidently been at work. God isn't just present with his people in Egypt and working his plan for Egypt, but is able to actually work through those circumstances, through Egypt through these otherwise impossible circumstances to show that what is impossible with man is possible in God. By his name, by his power. And all this points us forward to the cross because that, there we see the ultimate expression of God coming to do for his people what we could never do for ourselves. Like the ultimate expression of, really, you think you can do this? We see the response to that at the cross in which, like Joseph, this promised seed bears all of the judgment and punishment so that his family can flourish and be reconciled to their father as he goes to be with his father. Like Joseph, God uses this promised seed. He uses the punishment that fell upon his shoulders. Though he was innocent as a means of salvation for his people. Like Judah, he leads his people to the place in which they have no other choice but to, to trust. Right? Because they realize they're in the hands of the Lord. Their trust that God will do what he's promised. And, and, and Jesus leads us there to the cross. We realize that we have no other choice at the cross because we come to see the nature of our sin and the reality of God's holiness and increasingly our need for a Savior who came and bore that sin, dying in our place that we might have life. We come to the table this morning we come to the Lord's table weekly to proclaim that, all, that God works all things together for good at the cross of Christ. 
in the midst of hard circumstances, for those who are far off from him, and through what seem to be impossible situations, namely saving sinners like me, like us. He can do it, and he will do it. He will save you if you call out to him. If this, you know, this meal that we take together that we're about to have at the Lord's table, this is a meal for believers. If you're here this morning and you're a non-believer, we still ask that you participate, but to do so by asking questions, observing, but why not this morning, if you're here and you're, you realize, yes, it's true. God is holy. Yes, it's true. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. If you call upon his name, he will save you. And why not make this your first meal with the local church? This meal that's meant to signify, to point to the reality. That's meant, it's, it preaches the gospel weekly. That Christ's blood was shed for you. The Christ's body was broken for you and that now the Christian is one that goes with Christ, that he's in union with us, that, we're, that he goes with us and we are now his followers. And so this morning we come to the table.